Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Bud Blakelock's Bequest I learned of Bud Blakelock's death the day Quebec almost walked out on Canada. The two events, so far removed from one another, haunt me still. They both point in the same direction, to the senseless pain of separation and to what remains when you try to divide that which is indivisible. Growing up in Quebec... I observed the ways that led to separation, though political independence and sovereignty association, these were not words we commonly heard or used. I came into my teens on Montreal's West Island, which in the 60s was a kind of cultural island of its own, an English suburban ghetto. We knew Quebec was a French province, but our self-contained universe rarely forced us to admit it. Every morning I delivered 79 copies of the Montreal Gazette to my English reading neighbours. Then I rode on a school bus filled with my English-speaking friends and made small trouble all day at my English-language public high school. On Saturday nights, I played in an English-singing rock band when the words could be heard at all. And on Sunday mornings, I attended an Anglican church where we prayed in the language of King James, which without reflection, we assumed was the language spoken by Jesus himself. When our high school band took the occasional field trip downtown to the Place des Arts for a matinee performance of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, my friend Dave and I snuck out from the lineup and made our way instead down French streets past French shops and bistros to the English-speaking pawn shops on Craig Street, 
to Golden Imports and the original Steve's Music Store. There we hung off the street-smart banter of the bullshit artists who ran the shops, haggling our way into manhood, New York style. French language and culture existed hazily somewhere just beyond our close-focused adolescent field of vision. Incoherent clowns on French-language TV, overdressed and overacting. Reports of sold-out concerts downtown featuring popular Quebecois bands with names we never bothered to learn. Leather-clad bikers lounging in front of a local watering hole whose taunts and insults we didn't have to take seriously because they were tossed at us as we passed by in French. Ours was an English world. Our parents could feel it, though, the turbulent waters rising to the very gunnels of our genteel English punt. That's why we moved away. French sales clerks were becoming uppity, and the St. Jean-Baptiste Day marches downtown were growing more violent every year. Eventually there would be the FLQ, the kidnappings, and the War Measures Act. But we had gone by then, and those terrifying days belonged to someone else. It was late in the fall of 1995. I was brooding over Quebec's most recent referendum to separate from Canada, a referendum lost by less than a single percentage point, when I learned of Bud Blakelock's death and about his bequest to the church of a stained-glass window. The bequest was expected. The window was to complete a set he had commissioned after his wife Dorothy died ten years ago. He had donated the first window to St. Jude's while I was rector there as a memorial to her. It was installed in the north transept, just to the left of a blank window that retained the sickly greenish wash of opaque sculptured plexiglass. Though it had been completed at the same time, Bud held the second window back, intending to make it a kind of memorial to himself after his own death. One day the two would combine— to form a single scene, a striking depiction of the Easter Garden. This second window, by all reports, is a beautiful thing to see. It's an eight-foot-high representation of the empty tomb. The stone has been rolled back to reveal the linen cloths folded neatly inside. The tomb is set in the midst of flowering plants and shrubs, the sun rising on the distant horizon, An inscription below being, of course, the second half of the verse reads, He is risen. St. Jude's is a grey stone church standing in muted dignity at the east end of a small southwestern Ontario town. The original church had been located at the town centre, right at the main intersection. In 1921, after a fire tore through that quaint wooden structure, the hopeful and forward-thinking congregation decided to enlarge the church and rebuild it out east of town, where a railway line was supposed to be coming through. It was a time of wild optimism, a time when small rural communities, caught up in the spirit of the League of Nations and the New World Order, were taking for themselves names of international import. The neighboring village of Burns had just renamed itself Utopia, and at the barren, unnamed crossroads out by the cemetery, a sign suddenly appeared declaring, the Village of Peace, established 1919. In that spirit, the town considered giving itself a new name and a new image. The incorporated town of Continent was a strong contender for a while, working as one for a better world, until someone wondered out loud what it would be like to say they lived in Continent. In 
The people of St. Jude's felt certain the town would develop to the east and located the new church strategically at the heart of its future. But the promised railway never came, leaving the new church no choice but to hold its head high in the manner of a cat caught doing something dumb, like falling backward off a couch, as if to say, That may have looked dumb to you, but I knew exactly what I was doing. I think I'll just go and take a nap now. It was the last progressive idea St. Jude's ever had. Bud himself was not exactly a progressive thinker. He had been a church warden during my time there, and was one of the undisputed patriarchs of the church, and of the town too, for that matter, which was quite an accomplishment for someone not born there. He married in, as they say. He had met Dorothy during the war, at the wedding of a friend. As Dorothy had no brothers, Bud came to share in her inheritance of the family farm, which he then turned into one smart operation, winning the respect and admiration of the surrounding farming community. For a time, Bud was reeve of the town, and then, just as he was about to retire, he was offered a seat on Ontario's Milk Marketing Board. This made Bud a virtual citizen of the world in the eyes of most people. He went off to conferences all over the province, even to a national convention once in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. Bud may have considered his church involvement on much the same level, as an extension of his civic duty, though far less prestigious. As church warden, he pinched pennies and made sure the rector was doing his job, keeping church attendance up. As for his own attendance— he got himself up and out on Sundays in the same frame of mind with which he had risen early all those dark mornings to milk his cows. It was a necessary chore, though not too unpleasant, so long as the sermon didn't go on too long and everything else remained more or less as it had always been, which meant that, sooner or later, Bud was bound to collide with the progressive ideas of Father David. Father David Corcoran followed me at St. Jude's, fresh from three years as assistant curate at the cathedral. He was an intense young man who wanted to make his mark in this his first parish by helping this conservative rural congregation enter at least the 19th century, if not actually the 20th. The people themselves hadn't been too unhappy with things the way they were. But he told them the parish was out of step with changes happening the world over. The church was on the move, he said. Gone were the days when you could walk into an Anglican church anywhere in the world and be welcomed by the Book of Common Prayer. If they were to happen into a church in, say, New Zealand or South India or Nigeria, they would be in for a rude awakening. Bold new liturgies, contemporary music, concern for social justice. This was not a thought that had crossed the minds of very many of Father David's parishioners, but no one really wanted to appear so provincial as to state the obvious, that they were not intending to happen into a church in one of those foreign places. So they allowed themselves to be browbeaten into using the new green prayer book and having communion every week and singing folk songs accompanied on the guitar by Father David's wife Beverly. They took it, but they didn't like it. One Sunday, Father David explained that as Christians, we gather for worship not only to make our peace with God, but to make our peace with one another. That being the case, before the collection was to be taken up, they would each turn to their neighbor and exchange the ancient kiss of peace, which he explained in this day and age could be liberally interpreted as a handshake or some other friendly gesture. 
The words accompanying this gesture ought to be something like, The peace of Christ, or Peace be with you. Now Bud knew everyone in that church. He knew their personal problems, how much tax they paid, who had voted for him in that last election and who hadn't. Frankly, he wasn't coming to church to meet with his neighbors. He saw them and saw quite enough of them, thank you very much, every day, including Doris Benchley, a widow who had turned particularly friendly in the last year or so. Nobody, and he meant nobody, was going to tell him who to talk to in his own church. The time came in the service for the passing of the peace. It got off to a bad start when Father David asked everyone to turn and greet the person on their immediate right. They all turned and found themselves staring at the back of their neighbor's head, except for the ones at the far end of each row who turned to face the empty aisle or, on the south side of the nave, to face the wall. When they had sorted things out, they began awkwardly shaking hands with one another and mumbling, Hey, Bob, how are you? Good morning, Gladys. But Bud sat back down, folded his arms across his chest, and stared straight ahead. Doris Benchley, oozing neighborliness, turned around from the pew in front of him and reached out her hand. Good morning, Bud, she said in a sweet sing-song voice. Bud's message in return was pretty clear. He got up, left the pew, walked out of the church, and never went back again. Still, it was a foregone conclusion that when Bud died, St. Jude's would be the beneficiary of the second window, and that Bud himself would be duly memorialized in the north transept alongside Dorothy, his dearly departed wife. When the will was read, indeed, the window went to the church, but not to St. Jude's. Damning the winds of change right to the bitter end, Bud had left it to Holy Family Catholic Church, way out on the other side of town, where for some years Father Joe had been lashing out at all things faddish and spiritually lax, things like guitars and folk songs and tambourines in church, a view shared by Bud. No one could believe it, least of all the folks at Holy Family who, though mystified, were nonetheless glad to receive such a lovely gift. Quebec did not walk out on the rest of Canada that fateful day in 1995, she stood in the doorway, suitcase in hand, with that determined look of hers. She was well into her, I'm leaving you, we're through, speech, with her eyes blazing and her nostrils flaring, when all of a sudden, by some hair's breadth change of heart, she paused, let go of the bag, and collapsed back onto the couch. She had come so close this time. Meanwhile, the original window now stands alone, at the Church of St. Jude, the patron saint of difficult circumstances, the first panel of a two-window set depicting the Easter garden. There are a few trees in bloom in the background and beyond them some distant rose-colored hills. In the foreground, an angel in radiant white robes sits casually on a large stone, gesturing off-camera to its left in the direction of the blank window of greenish plexiglass. Beneath the half-scene, etched in the glass, is an inscription. It reads simply, He is not here. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that 
I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.